Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale Global Online is the flagship publication of the Yale Center for the Study of Globalization and explores the implications of the world's growing interconnectedness through people, products, and ideas. Clock running out on irreversible climate change. Producers toy with scarcity, allowing fuel prices to soar while the earth edges closer to catastrophe. Part 1 by Jim Hansen, writing from New York, read by Morgan Robinson. Fifty years ago, Yankee Stadium had about 70,000 seats. It seldom sold out, and almost any kid could afford the cheapest seats. Capacity was reduced to about 57,000 when the stadium was remodeled in the 1970s. Most games sell out now, and prices have gone up. The new stadium, opening next year, will reduce seating to about 51,800. This intentional contraction is aimed at guaranteeing sellouts, increasing demand, allowing the owners, in short order, to triple prices or more. The owners have learned that scarcity will fatten their wallets. The plan may discriminate against the lower middle class, but as long as the owner is footing the bill without public subsidies, there may be little grounds for complaint. Now fossil fuel moguls are intent on hoodwinking the entire planet with an analogous scheme. The basic trick is oil producers overstating fossil fuel reserves. Government Energy Information Department's parrot industry. Partly because of disinformation, the major efforts needed to develop alternative energies have not been made. The reality of limited supply forces prices higher. Eventually, sales volume will begin to decline, but fossil fuel moguls will make more money than ever. They'll continue to assert that there's plenty more oil, gas, or coal to be found, aiming to keep the suckers on the hook. Indeed, they may find somewhat more in the deep ocean, under national parks, in polar regions, offshore, and in other environmentally sensitive areas. They don't need much to keep the suckers paying higher and higher prices. Oil reserves suddenly doubled when OPEC decided that production quotas would be proportional to official reserves. These higher reserves are, at least in part, phantom. Coal reserves are based on estimates made many decades ago. Closer study shows that extractable coal reserves are vastly overstated, consistent with present production difficulties and rising prices. The presumed 200-year supply of coal in the United States is a myth, but it serves industry moguls well. Conventional fossil fuel supplies are limited, even if we tear up the earth to extract every last drop of oil and shard of coal. Tearing up the earth to get at those last drops, ExxonMobil proudly advertises that they're drilling the depths of the ocean and searching the most extreme, pristine environments, is as insane as the smoker who trudged four miles through a raging storm to buy a pack of camel cigarettes to feed his nicotine addiction. It would be possible to find more fossil fuels and extend our addiction and pollution of the environment, should we be so foolish as to take the path of extracting unconventional fossil fuels such as tar shale and tar sands on a large scale. That choice cannot be left to the discretion of industry moguls. The planet does not belong to them. Basic facts on reserves must be combined with basic climate facts described in the paper Target Atmospheric CO2, Where Should Humanity Aim? Our conclusion is that if humanity wishes to preserve a planet similar to the one on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted, CO2 must be reduced from its present 385 parts per million to at most 350 parts per million. We find that peak CO2 can be kept to about 425 parts per million, 
with large estimates for oil and gas reserves if coal is phased out by 2030, except where CO2 is captured and sequestered, and unconventional fossil fuels are not tapped substantially. Peak CO2 can be kept close to 400 parts per million if actual reserves are closer to those estimated by peakists, who believe that the globe is already at peak global oil production, having extracted about half of readily extractable oil resources. This lower 400 parts per million peak can be ensured, assuming phase-out of coal emissions by 2030, if a practical limit on reserves is achieved by means of actions that prevent fossil fuel extraction from public lands, offshore regions under government control, environmentally pristine regions, and extreme environments. The concerned public can influence this matter, but time is short. The industry voice is strong, and climate effects have not yet become so obvious to the public as to overwhelm the disinformation from industry moguls. A near-term moratorium on coal-fired power plants and constraints on oil extraction in extreme environments are essential, because once CO2 is emitted into the air, much of it will remain there for centuries. Improved agricultural and forestry practices, mostly reforestation, could draw down atmospheric CO2 about 50 parts per million by the end of the century. But a greater drawdown by such more or less natural methods seems impractical, making a long-term overshoot of the 350 parts per million target level, with potentially disastrous consequences, a near certainty if the world stays on its business-as-usual course. If we choose a different path, which permits the possibility of achieving 350 parts per million CO2 or lower this century, we can minimize the chance of passing tipping points that spiral out of control, such as disintegration of ice sheets, rapid sea level rise, and extermination of countless species. At the same time, we could solve problems that seem intractable, such as acidification of the ocean with consequent loss of coral reefs. In any event, we must move beyond fossil fuels soon because a large fraction of CO2 emissions will linger in the atmosphere for many centuries. The world must move to zero fossil fuel emissions. This is a fact, a certainty. So why not do it sooner in time to avert climate crises? At the same time, we halt other pollution that comes from fossil fuels, including mercury pollution, conventional air pollution, problems stemming from mountaintop removal, and more. Breaking an addiction is not easy. But we may be like the smoker who trudged four miles through rain to get a pack of camels. When he got back to his motel, he threw the pack away and never smoked again. Fossil fuel addiction is more difficult. One person's epiphany cannot solve the problem. This problem requires global cooperation. We must be on a new path within the next several years, or reducing CO2 levels this century becomes implausible. Developed countries, the source of most excess CO2 in the air today, must lead in developing clean energy and halting emissions. Yet it is hardly a sacrifice. Green jobs will be an economic stimulus and a boon to worker well-being. A major fight is brewing. It might be called a war. On the one side, we find the short-term financial interests of the fossil fuel industry. On the other side, young people and other beings who will inherit the planet. The fight seems uneven. The fossil fuel industry is launching a disinformation campaign, and they have powerful influence in capitals around the world. Young people seem pretty puny in comparison to industry moguls, and animals don't talk or vote. The battle may start with local and regional skirmishes, one coal plant at a time. But it could build rapidly. We're running out of time. Meanwhile, the mogul's dirtiest trick is spewing green messages to the public, propaganda intended to leave the impression they're moving in the right direction. Meanwhile, they hire scientific has-beens to dispute evidence and confuse the public.
When will we know that the long-term public interest has overcome the greed? When investors, companies, and governments begin to invest en masse in renewable energies when all aim for zero carbon emissions. Clock Running Out on Irreversible Climate Change, Part 2 by Bo Ekman, writing from Stockholm, read by Morgan Robinson. For all intents and purposes, the Kyoto Protocol is dead, and unless urgent actions are taken, its successor, the Copenhagen process, may turn out to be dead on arrival or comatose. Kyoto never delivered reductions of CO2 emissions, but still binds 174 nations until 2012. Meanwhile, global greenhouse gas emissions have steadily increased since the reference year of 1990. New negotiations for Kyoto II must produce nothing less than the perfect agreement to be followed by perfect implementation. The clear and present danger is that the Copenhagen process will deliver a compromise between nations that will fall far short of this ambition. Repeatedly, events have shown failure of collective governance in dealing with political adventurism sheltered by the principle of sovereignty. The war in Iraq, the occupation of the West Bank, or repression in Tibet, the horrific tragedy of Darfur, or painful madness of Zimbabwe, the concentration camp at Guantanamo Bay, not to mention the global arsenal of 27,000 nuclear warheads, show that the international vehicles of today are no stronger nor more dependable than any time in the past. Trust levels are low within international systems. Paranoia and citizen surveillance and nationalism are at a high. Thus, the Copenhagen process takes place in an atmosphere of institutional distrust and competition. No nation wants to emerge as loser before their national audiences. The loser will be nature, the biosphere with which none of us can strike a deal. Nature is represented at the negotiating table only through the analyses of the IPCC reports of 2007. No new reports are due until 2010, but science does not wait. However, while James Hansen of NASA now convincingly shows that humanity must reverse the atmospheric content of CO2 from today's 385 parts per million to 350 parts per million, itself a Herculean task, nations and negotiators aim for targets of 450 to 500 parts per million and the illusionary governance ability to limit the increase of temperature to a maximum of 2 degrees centigrade. This will prove as unfeasible as the stamping out of humans cheating one another. Targets are defined according to what is judged as politically possible in the short term and economically desirable, rather than what is required to guarantee a stable ecosystem in the long term. Current scientific knowledge starkly presents 350 parts per million as a boundary condition in nature that humankind should not have transgressed. It marks the point between which we can no longer be sure to maintain the stability and predictability of nature. This stability was the most important prerequisite for the evolution of human civilization over the last 10,000 years. There are several more boundary conditions that we should avoid transgressing. Limits to fresh water use, fishing, deforestation, toxic waste, land use, and misuse of other biodiverse ecosystems such as wetlands. These limits must be defined, never to be surpassed. Safely keeping human activity within nature's boundary conditions does not necessarily mean limits to growth. Humans have always been a flexible and creative species. But surpassing those boundaries will, with absolute certainty, result in economic and social decline. The biosphere is a complex, adaptive system evolving to support life. Civilization is a human-designed system whose purpose is to create secure economic, social, and cultural value. 
This system is built upon the combination of technology, energy, and ecosystem services, that is, outputs of water, biomass, food, minerals, and breathable air. These two systems, biosphere and civilization, are no longer synchronized at the global scale. They are, in fact, colliding. Humankind is overextending Earth's annual biocapacity by 125%. Short-term consequences will increase prices for energy, food, water, and resources for the ever-growing global population. Long-term consequences could be devastating to all forms of life on the planet. This is why we can accept nothing less than the perfect agreement from the Copenhagen process. We can only bind our future to an agreement that secures, with prudent margins for time eternal, the intricate internal balances and interactions of nature's systems. The world has extremely complex systems problems, but we have no matching forms of governance to correct them. We need to move from soft to hard global governance, from global compact to global contract. The Copenhagen process could provide such an opportunity. It must therefore be redefined, redesigned, and rescheduled. Above all, its targets must be stated with clarity, and leaders of nations must morally and operationally rise to the occasion. The declarations on climate change spoken in the General Assembly on September 24, 2007, by hundreds of heads of states, were badly matched by the discouraging performance at Bali. The expected compromise of Copenhagen we call Plan A. Each nation's fallback plan prioritizing its own interests is a Plan B. If there's no credible Plan A, the world will descend into eco-protectionism, where struggles over food, water, fuels, and biomass overshadow any principle of solidarity. The Talberg Foundation has taken the initiative to develop a Plan C, a shadow plan for Kyoto II. We will suggest an idealized design of the perfect agreement, with mechanisms for perfect implementation. It will be based on the definition of those natural boundary conditions we must not transgress, and will guide the moral imperatives of a leadership acting in the interests of the whole. Nature is neither a political nor an economic system. Nature is neither ideological nor religious. Nature is simply nature, and Homo sapien is a product of nature. Brian Arthur, the brilliant Irish economist, observes in his forthcoming book on the theory of technology that technology brings hope, but that trust can only be achieved through our conscious relationship with nature. Trust and hope must be fundamental ingredients in our vision of the future and the redesign of the Kyoto Agreement. The easy way out for many is the elusive promise of new technology, with the wisdom of market forces like cap-and-trade systems. We may remember that it was earlier generations of technologies and market mechanisms that created the current problems. Modern society put its hope in technology rather than trust in nature, fixated by the idea that if only new technologies yield a competitive financial return on investment, the market will fix the environmental mess. The reality is that the financial markets never fix recurrent failures. The market did not fix apartheid, fascism, or World War II. Politics did. Governance did. The yield of good politics is another kind of return on investment, the return on insight. We own the necessary insight into the acute and massive ecosystems crises, but not yet the responsible politics needed. Let's invent them. We need a new global deal that combines trust with hope. The patrolling and defense of nature's boundary conditions is a political assignment. Its implementation will demand law enforcement regimes that, by design, infringe on the sovereignty of nations and their monopolies of military and police force, and of natural resources. 
Political insight will not, however, be applied without a thundering tsunami of global, enlightened public opinion demanding solutions to the question, how on earth can we live together, we the humans, we with nature? This and other Yale Global articles can be found at yaleglobal.yale.edu.